We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Welcome to The Hidden Gin, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Hi, and welcome to this very special bonus series of The Hidden Gin, The Interviews. In these episodes, you'll hear me talk to people from all walks of life who have had gin experiences, are drawn to the stories of gin, and draw lessons from these stories. You'll hear from artists, scholars, writers, journalists, and gin exorcists. And even from me, as I discuss how and why this series came about in a very personal conversation with my husband. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I am very excited to introduce my guest for you this week, an artist like no other that you have ever known. Morshin Aliari is an artist, activist, writer, and educator. She was born and raised in Iran and moved to the U.S. in 2007. And her work deals with the political, social, and cultural contradictions that we face every single day. She's an acclaimed artist, the recipient of the Joan Mitchell Foundation Painters and Sculptors Grant, the Sundance Institute New Frontier International Fellowship, and Leading Global Thinkers of 2016 Award by Foreign Policy Magazine. Her work has been part of numerous exhibitions, festivals, and workshops around the world, including the Whitney Museum of American Art, Pompidou Center, Museum of Contemporary Art in Montreal, the Tate Museum, the Queens Museum, Powerhouse Museum, the Dallas Museum of Art, and so many more. Now, I came across Morishin when I was researching female gins, and I came across her incredible project called She Who Sees the Unknown. And in this project, Morishin uses 3D scanning, modeling, and printing to recreate monstrous female and queer figures from Middle Eastern origins. Believe me, this is a conversation you don't want to miss. Thank you so much for joining us, um, uh, Mohreshin. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. I have been fascinated with your work uh, ever since I discovered it earlier this year. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Rabia. It's it's an honor. So, um, you know, I, as you know, you know, this uh, conversation series is a companion to the ongoing series, which will, which will have aired by the time this, this airs, um, called the Hidden Gin Podcast. And I drew on a lot of different sources. And one of those sources actually was the exhibit that I found, and that's how I discovered you, called She Who Sees the Unknown. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about, you say on your website um, about this exhibit that in Iranian traditions, jinn are fearsome and honored, and that your upbringing in Iran was full of ancient mythical narratives involving supernatural beings and your bedtime stories uh, told to you by your grandmother often included jinn. So I, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing, about your background in Iran, and about the, the jinn lore that you grew up with. Yes. Um, 
So I started to kind of become interested in general since like three and a half years ago uh, in these uh, figures of monstrous female slash genderless queer figures in mythical stories uh, that would origin in West Asia or, or basically Middle Eastern um, ancient stories. And um, to kind of uh, um, give you a little bit of, I guess, more summary of also like my practice in relationship to that, I, you know, I also have been very interested in this relationship between technology and history in that sense. So when I was doing this research, um, I was going through a lot of resources and books and, and material um, that would, you know, include this, this also like figure of, of Jen uh, within Islamic tradition studies. And so that's when I, when I became interested in like researching more um, into the figure of the Jinn. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's a figure that I grew up with in, in Iran. Whenever there were stories that kind of were ghosties, ghostly stories, etc., it would always involve the figure of the Jinn. And so a lot of people who might have grown up in different countries, Islamic countries or Middle Eastern countries, probably also identify with this, that uh, Jen is a figure that we grow up with in a lot of our, our um, stories, bedtime stories. Um, and at the same time, that is very feared as a figure. Um, it's also very respected. So people take certain kind of um, caution or like certain kind of uh, care in terms of the way they they deal with the, the the djinn and the way that you shouldn't interrupt certain spaces or uh you kind of can use different methods as a way to not not be possessed by by the djinn so yeah go on. No, no, go on please so for me the figure of the djinn uh had this personal relationship that i had with it um, but at the same time Coming, I was also like coming to it from uh, more of like a, a feminist perspective and uh, feminism studies, and that's so, something that I guess I can talk more about later. Yeah, um, so I, so I want to um, talk a little bit about what your perspective on these stories were as you grew up, and maybe how that's changed um, with adulthood. I, I also, you know, I grew up steeped kind of in this 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 culture, although in my family nobody totally told stories much, but you know, a, a couple of Muslim kids get together, and that's that was the topic conversation often late at night. Um, so when, when you were being taught or told these stories, were they kind of like lessons that were being told to you? Were they told to you to entertain or to maybe uh, warn you from certain behaviors or was it taught to you as something like, look, this is real. Like you got to take this seriously. Um, I think it's a combination of a couple of those things you said. So most of it, as I, as I, as you also mentioned, it was, told by my grandmother who lived with us and you know I had a very close relationship to and one of the most vivid memories I have is um, in a in a summer and evening um, almost like night when the stars were out and it was me and uh, two of uh, my my cousins who we all lived in the same apartment building and my grandmother was telling us about her encounter with a gen um, at a public uh, bath where she grew up, which is a village in Kurdistan in west of Iran. Mm -hmm. And she was telling us, you know, how it was very common for women who would go to these public bathhouses uh, to encounter gen. Uh, and one of the things that is also known or like talked about about the gen is that they really like spaces that are dark and humid. So basically 
you know, a, a place like a bathhouse is like a perfect place for them to come and visit. So for me, it was kind of like a, as, as a child, it was a mixture of believing it and doubting it. Like, did she really see it? Was it something else she saw that like she thought it's a gin? Um, but again, like because those stories get like repeated so much within different people's experiences of encountering gin, um, it's kind of like becomes uh, almost like an oral narrative of, you know, a relationship with this supernatural creature that is there. And then certain people encounter it and certain people don't. And if you're scared of it, then as I mentioned earlier, you can take certain actions um, to, to avoid it. Were you ever aware, and I wasn't aware until adulthood, and I did you know, my research kind of more deeply into, into this whole subject, um, that jinn are gendered um, and that there is a body of, you know, folklore around female jinn in particular, or at least um, people encounter them as female jinn. Was that something you were aware of growing up or is that something you also learned as you started doing your research into this project? Absolutely not. My image of the jinn as, as this creature was always male. And again, this goes back to one of the reasons I became really curious and also interested in this, this project that I worked on for, for almost four years, She Who Sees the Unknown, um, which I wanted to kind of find these female or almost genderless uh, stories and figures of, of the jinn and also like monstrous figures because um, also growing up in Iran with a lot of mythical and you know ancient stories that are part of um, our daily life, but also our you know school and like literature and, and education. Incredible all stories, these, yeah, incredible stories. Yeah, and they're all always very you know all, all these figures are male. So I was wondering like where are the female figures or where are the figures that are perhaps like more more queer, more like non-binary in terms of like you know gender as like this thing that you know, in English, we're like very specific about he and she, but in, in Farsi, actually, there's no he or she for third person, right? So I kind of like wanted to find also that ambiguity within these, these texts and, and material. And yeah, that's, that's how I came across so many female or genderless figures of, of jinn that were illustrated in different books and, and resources and material that I had no idea about. Can you tell us um, a little bit about the the exhibit? Again, it's titled She Who Sees the Unknown, uh, about the kind of, um, th- like the medium that you used for this exhibit. I mean, it's, and, and I wish I could, I don't know. Where is it dis- being displayed right now, by the way? So it's more of like a project. I mean, it has been exhibited in so many different places. But when you go to my the website, she who sees the unknown.com, it's a research-based project that has many different components and elements from performance to these 3D printed sculptures that I recreate from illustrations I find in older material books, etc., cetera, um, to these new texts and narratives that I write about each of these figures that I choose to work with. And then there's an archive aspect of it and also like a reading room that I have been uh, also working on as part of the project. So, um, yeah, the project itself, again, has many, many different components. Um, and then the exhibition, in time I've shown it, it has, you know, taken many, many different forms. But within mm-hmm. the research I've done, I've come across many, many texts and material and, and illustrations, but I've chosen to focus on five 
specific figures, which are Huma, who is a jinn who brings fever to human body, Yajuj Majuj, who are these figures that are kind of like monsters, jinn-like, uh, that are spoken in the Quran that uh, represent chaos, the laughing snake, uh, which uh, is uh, known as, you know, a, a very like powerful kind of hybrid animal, um, human, female, human uh, combination uh, that is known uh, as, you know, this figure that is very um, strong and is, is going through all these like towns and cities and killing people and eating all the animals and no one can win a war with her until um, someone comes and say the only way to kill her is to hold a mirror in front of her. And when she sees her reflection, she starts laughing and she laughs for days and nights until she dies from the laughter. Um, and then Kabus, which is a gen that is known uh, as a gen that brings nightmare and sleep paralysis to human body. Um, and then Aisha Pandesha, which is actually originally a Moroccan gen um, that is known to possess a man uh, creating a crack on their body. And the only way to not go insane when you're possessed by her is to participate with her and listen to her. So mm -hmm. I use all these, you know, really beautiful, complex stories. And then I, I write new stories about them. I, I turn them around. I kind of connect different aspects of, you know, their 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 power um, into different uh, contemporary issues and topics and also kind of these like futuristic alternative reimagination of what's possible in the world. Right. You've coined this term refiguring, which um, I read about. Yes. And you said the refiguring is about activation and preservation. Can you talk a little bit about refiguring and um, when you when you think about refiguring or when you go about it? Is the content because I know I mean a lot of your work is um, it has a social political um, aspect to it. Um, I know in this exhibit we're going to talk about specifically have some. I mean you just turned the story of Yajuj Majuj on its head for me. Um, but you know uh, a lot of it vis-a-vis -vis like um, colonization and imperialism. But also, are you also doing the refiguring within kind of your own cultural context? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the the most important aspect of that is the refiguration of um, this 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 figure of the female uh, monstrous female figure, which is known usually as like negative uh, or or mean, uh, which is kind of like you can compare it to you know the figure of the witch. Um, in, in like Western literature and like kind of like cultural productions, uh, which has been turned around through like different feminist movements as something that instead of like being considered, you know, like this like figure of an old, ugly woman uh, into, a, you know, a, a, like a kind of witchcraft movement, which is like empower empowerment for like women to turn around that figure. So that's something I'm doing within the cultural context of these um stories and also the figures themselves uh which is to you know especially like i mean i can give you like an example with let's say the laughing snake which i am kind of turning around this idea that her her death because of her laughter is considered a weakness um and i'm saying that actually that position that she's taking is a position of um you know empowerment because she's taking away her reflection from the mirror that is held by these men, as you see in this like old illustrations in two different resources um, and kind of 
then I, I use that to tell a more contemporary story of growing up in Iran and uh, dealing with sexual harassment and, uh, you know, like trying to figure out my body as a woman and thinking about sexual desire. And so kind of, again, trying to like find ownership of my body as a woman, but also it's, it's an experience that is very collective in terms of like all women growing up in, in, in Iran can, can connect to this, these stories and these experiences within street harassment, but also in a wider, again, um, connection to it. It's, it's something that all women can connect to and with in, in different levels. So you interpret the laughter, uh, which actually, when I first read about the story, I also kind of did as something that was empowering. Yes, absolutely. Because, because, you know, the way it's, I feel like sometimes it's told is more of, you know, she laughs and then she dies and that's the end. And like they find a way to kill her. But then again, for me, she make the decision, her laughter as a response to what they're doing is like a, um, you know, very conscious decision of how to respond to, to that reflection that, sh- that she's witnessing being held by these men. Um, yeah. So, and I, and again, like this idea of refiguration or turning around power structures is something that I became really interested in uh, within this project and how I can do that through specifically also storytelling and a narrative um, that has political, cultural components to it. Um, I want to talk about uh, Gaboots. I thought, um, and I've spent a lot of time on your website. I've watched pretty much all the videos on there. Uh, and so Gaboots are, and they're also called Al Jathum, and they are known to be kind of a race of jinn, kind of a category of jinn that bring different um, sicknesses and trauma and nightmares. And uh, the depiction is uh, can be quite frightening. Um, this jinn is it looks like they're kind of um, hovering above a human being in, in, in some of the illustrations I've seen as a person sleeps, um, bringing nightmares to them. But your narration as it relates to this figure was um, just really, uh, I, I mean, it was kind of, um, I don't know, I, I, it really did bring me to tears because your narration is about the story of your birth and the story of you waiting for your mother as a child to land every time she flew. So could you tell us about that story and how, um, how this, this, the Gaboos um, lore resonates with it? Um, yeah. Uh, so I, Gaboos was one of the uh, figures that I had come across with within my research and I always kind of like held it somewhere in my head to kind of come back to. And she, actually she's the last figure from this series that um, I, I worked on. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned, Kabus is known as a gen that brings uh, nightmare, but also specifically sleep paralysis to human body. Um, so, we also said in, in Farsi, it's also known as Bakhtak, which is kind of like known as this thing that kind of, you know, sits on your chest and won't let you move. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I kind of started doing a lot of research first, like within also like this, the scientific aspect of it, like what happens when you experience sleep paralysis? I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Have you ever experienced sleep paralysis? I have not, but my husband has, and he has described it um, as a gin to me. That's what he believes it was. <laughs> it's yeah. It's a very, I, I've uh, experienced it um, 
three times in, in my life. And I, I think like most of those three times I was really like stressed for like different reasons. Uh, and they say kind of like from the scientific aspect of it, stress also like has, you know, very kind of direct relationship to how you experience this and why you experience it. But that, that gin experience that your, your husband is talking about is actually also very present in a way that, that, that you experience sleep paralysis uh, when you're sleeping my first time that I had experienced it, I, I, I literally saw someone opening the window, but I saw myself seeing them. So that's another thing that happens again within what happens in, in, in your brain. If you study it uh, within scientific research is that you, you become an image and then you will be standing outside of that image then watching yourself. And I experienced it completely like that. And that's really scary because you see yourself not being able to move while you're awake. Um, so anyway, I, I, I've been always like fascinated by that because I also had like this personal experience and I ask people sometimes, you know, about like, have you ever experienced this? What was your experience with sleep paralysis if you did? Um, so thinking about that and thinking about kind of like, basically trauma, right? A lot of papers written on sleep paralysis, as I said, is connected to stress and trauma. Mm. And so I was like thinking about trauma and I was like doing like a lot of research uh, in this um, recent scientific, also like research that is this idea of intergenerational trauma, which is that um, trauma stays in, in your DNA, basically, um, and it can be passed on within generations. Uh, some people also call it like blood memory, you know, so like the experience of enslaved people, let's say, to the experience of war, to like other experiences that has been experienced to, again, dif different generations, it can be passed on. The, the, even if you don't experience it yourself as a new generation, it still kind of stays within your DNA and your blood memory. So I was fascinated by those. These, these, these are, again, like newer research um, and scientific studies. And I wanted to somehow connect this relationship between trauma, intergenerational trauma, to also my ideas of, you know, when we experience inter intergenerational trauma, like as a, as a person you know, who is like now like 35, I think about birthing a lot and I think about children a lot, but also not wanting to have my own, my own child. Um, and so I connect this story to like four generations of women. So my grandmother, my mother, myself, and an imagined monstrous like gen-like daughter. Um, and then we all in different parts of this VR film, uh, we tell different stories about um, motherhood and war and different different trauma and different encounter with Jen. Uh, so and all of this happens in a in a bathhouse. As I said at the beginning of this um, conversation, um, my grandmother always talked about bathhouses and also public bathhouses at a time were really important social spaces for women and intimacy between right. women. So women would go and spend hours, you know, at a, at a bathhouse. Uh, to bath, but also to hang out and sing and, and gossip. Um, so this space of intimacy was something I wanted to bring together these four generations of women for us to talk about um, different relationships we ha we've had with um, trauma and then war being a big part of me growing up in Iran. And like this diary uh, that I f uh, my mom gave me when I was around 16 or 17 that she wrote during um, Iran-Iraq war when she was pregnant with my sister. 
Um, and somewhere in it, she talks about how she feels guilty for giving birth uh, to my sister. And she doesn't know if mm. it's the right decision and if it's a cruel decision. Um, and so that always stayed with me, you know, as a teenager, it always stayed with me be because I would also kind of um, ask my, 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 my parents or like tease them and saying like, how could your generation give birth to this many kids because the, the eight years of war had actually the highest rate of birth um and you know again like connecting that to my own um experiences of thinking about motherhood but like rethinking motherhood and thinking about birthing as something that could be you know birth justice is a, is a specific word that i use in that narrative right right, which right. talk is, about that which is not just, I mean, the definition of birth justice is having the choice um, of, you know, as, as a woman, having a choice of when, with who, and um, let's see, when, with who, and I'll say that again in a second, but I'm trying to, wait, is it like who? No, let's see. I believe you also I, said where. Yeah. I guess it is where. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So let me, let me say that again. Sure. Um, so this, I, I came across this, you know, uh, kind of very specific definition of uh, birth justice, which is that as a woman having the option to choose when, with whom, and where to give birth. Um, and I added to that what to give birth to, um, mm -hmm. you know, as my own kind of imagined way of thinking about how to break through this intergenerational trauma cycle, right? Um, and kind of like the only way in, in it, I say the only way to, 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 to break through this cycle is to reimagine the possibilities of what we give birth to. Um, and in this, you know, fictional story that I'm kind of building within the VR film, I'm, I'm birthing kind of like a monstrous gen mix of like, you know, a child um, that is human and non-human at a time, but kind of, again, uh, within thinking about monstrosity as something that can be a position of uh, empowerment, like embracing that 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 monstrosity or the figure of the jinn, um, this this child is able to see the future for us and help us to build an alternative kind of kind of future. You know, um, so it's again sits between like a real and real fictional and non-fictional, more like documentary style um, film. But for me, um, as, as, you, as you also like mentioned earlier, it's kind of like finding these stories and then connecting them to something that is very personal and also at the same time, um, you know, again, can be expanded to other, other people's experiences. Well, that film and um, that particular exhibit, I think it was jarring to me in, in many ways. Also, um, hearing the voice, the, the childlike monster voice, uh, you know, there's a real frightening aspect, of course. I mean, like, you know, jinn are supposed to be frightening. They inspire fear in us. Um, but I, I feel like you're using that fear in a very different way. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you think, wh whether there's instrumental, whether you, you are instrumentalizing the fear uh, in, in a specific way to, to mean something else that's not necessarily like the, the fear means that these monstrous beings um, are evil necessarily because you know, there's a strong connection between jinn 
evil, especially the jinn that we are told if the jinn encounter human beings, um, the lore is, and those are definitely evil jinn. Yes. Um, yes. So, I mean, that's a really great question because uh, the way that I have tried to try to build this project and kind of build, build and, and re- refigure these, these stories and figures is to find perhaps like a balance between um, this, this hybrid aspect of what jinn are. So they're both feared uh, and honored, right? So they can, they, can, you, they can be your friend and at the same time your enemy. Um, you, can, you can befriend them and use their power. Like that's what they're known as, right? If, if you know how to like befriend a jinn and like use their power, you can use that power to possess other, other beings or like make some, something happen within the world, right? Mm. Um, but also you can be possessed by them. So there's always this sort of gray area with the figure of, of, of the jinn. Um, and even in the Quran, when they're talked about, you know, you, we have the figure of the, the angel that obeys and then the devil that disobeys. And um, like humans, jinn have the will to obey or disobey. Um, and that's something that made them made made working with the j- figure of the jinn really interesting for my research and and, and this body of work. Um, so yeah, I try to kind of build a space where they're feared, but at the same time, we're in. We we want to know them. We want to get to know them. We want to enter their world. And within the um, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of the feminist movements and the feminism. A refiguration of them um i try to like use use their figures um as a way to um again like find a space for the empowerment of um women and not non-binary people um etc so it's it's really a mix of these worlds that i try to like bring together um and also channel this power of, of, of the gen um for our empowerment We'll be right back after this short break. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. One of the um, questions that I pose in, there's one specific episode that uh, focuses on the female jinn. And one of the one of those jinn that's heavily focused on is Aisha Kandicha, who has a really rich, I mean, there's so much tradition around that figure. Um, and But not the other ones that you actually um, have included in your exhibit. But the question, one of the questions I pose is, you know, as I was reading these stories, I wondered, you know, I can see it playing both ways with these stories, um, which in large part, at least in South Asian culture, you do not 
we don't we don't have access to stories of female jinn anymore. These don't exist anymore. I've never heard them anymore unless they are like an unnamed witch type of figure, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or something that's not as um, I guess not a, like not as powerful like as a Aisha Kandita or a Lilith or other kinds of female figures. But I've always wondered um, were were the were the perceptions around female jinn? Do you think a reflection of how society viewed viewed women you know we we have this i mean it's not uncommon to hear in in a lot of muslim cultures that oh yeah women are bent a little bit crooked like the rib of adam because they come from the rib of adam so there's something a little nefarious about women or i wondered are these stories of jinn who these female jinn who have so much power and can inspire so much fear are these actually projections of the women at the time themselves saying this is what we are capable of and you should hold a little fear and love and respect all at the same time. Yeah. I like to, you know, I, I like to think that's like a big part of it. The, the, the one that you just mentioned, but also I'm pretty sure it's a combination of two pretty much, you know, within looking at a lot of these stories and kind of like also, again, like one thing I've, I've been doing and researching is um, also the parallel um, world of, um, western like figures or methodologies and how they've been used within different like feminist movements right like as i mentioned the, the figure of the witch or um the the you know we have the figure of the zombies which can be male or female but definitely i think um something that i have been fascinated by is um that kind of patriarchal you know heaviness of like how how these figures are like not just that women are like you know, from, as you say, there is like that, that saying that women actually within a, some Islamic uh, cultures and thinking that are like, even are considered half of men, right? They're that yeah. incomplete. And actually um, to be fair, look, it's not just, I mean, the, all the Abrahamic, I mean, you know, absolutely. I mean like original sin, right? I mean like how Christianity right. and Judaism, it's, it, it exists, I would say even non-Abrahamic cultures, but certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Like, so that's my, my research within like other cultures and studies shows exactly what you're saying that like that that like patriarchal kind of like perspective toward like women their madness their uh like hysteria right there's a long history of hysteria and, and pa- patriarchy within like women having this hysteria or madness for different reasons when you like there's a whole wikipedia page on hysteria well america still thinks that a woman is not emotionally stable enough to become president so (laughs) yeah and we have that within you know in iran for example you can't be a judge as a woman because uh or you are too emotional to be able to like judge with with logic basically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah so i want to talk i have to say this you know i i am I'm always, uh, I ha- and you know, I'm an observant Muslim, um, and but I have had to rediscover my faith um, in the last 15, 20 years because I realized that the gatekeepers who are teaching us things have a very specific perspective, have a, you know, it's just the male perspective, it's a very patriarchal, misogynistic perspective. And so retelling the stories in a way that actually makes sense to the I would say the spirit of what I believe is uh, a lot of faith is about has really opened up a lot of doors for me. But this retelling 
of Yajuj Majuj. I cannot tell you. I can't stop thinking about this. And I'm going to talk about this with every other person I meet. Um, but for our listeners, uh, just uh, uh, you might you might not be familiar with Yajuj Majuj, but you might be familiar with Gog and Magog, which is yes. found in the biblical telling uh, and the Talmudic telling, or sorry, the Torah telling. Uh, and Gog and Magog are a race of beings that it is said, at least um, I can speak more specifically in the Islamic tradition, that they are basically hidden behind a wall. They have they, they cause chaos. They are these beings that if they're unleashed into the world, they'll destroy it. So for centuries and millennia, they have been buried uh, behind this wall. Every single day, they chip away at this wall. And at the end of the day, they give up and say, well, we can't, we, we just can't get through. But every single, the next day, they start over again. And the as the story goes, towards the end of time, um, towards the day of judgment, at one point, they're going to breach the wall and completely be unleashed on this world. But oh my gosh, you have to tell me how you imagine the story in your own words. Absolutely. Yeah, so I came actually across um, this story sometime after uh, the the Muslim ban or travel ban um, had happened in in the US and I myself was also affected by it at a time um, I had left the US for um, a a week of exhibitions and conference that I was part of in in Berlin in Germany and then the ban happened and at a time I had um, an Iranian passport and a green card and if some of you might remember at the beginning green card holders were also like included uh with the with the ban and from if you were from these six banned countries um so i it was like such a strange complicated moment where i just didn't know if i could come back to the us and you know i i have i've lived here for like now around 11 12 years and so that was like a really intense moment of realizing everything i had built here could just Go, go to zero. But obviously I was privileged enough to have the green card and be able to come back while this story up to today, four years later almost, uh, is very relevant to the lives of many uh, people who are trying to come to this country for, for different reasons as immigrants, refugees, etc. Um, and so I came across the story of Yajuj Majuj um, and, you know, this this image of the wall was something that was just stuck in my head because it talks about the wall as something that they get this figure, Zolokarin, in some texts they say it's um, uh, Alexander the Great, right. um, to build this wall. Um, and these the people of the city ask for this wall to be built, to keep Yajuj Majuj out because they represent chaos, as you also mentioned. Um, and so reading i started to do a lot of research around it like reading different interpretations of this story not just within you know the the, the islamic text itself but but different interpretations of um different you know uh i guess um muslim scholars or just just people reading the story and coming up with their own interpretation of what what this means and one thing that was really fascinating to me is kind of these 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 different time zones and timelines of um, how Yajuj Majuj or who Yajuj Majuj had been interpreted as. So somewhere like, oh, they were, um, um, you know, Turkish people or Mongolians who, who attacked Iran. Somewhere like, you know, again, saying they, they represent Israel. Um, and, you know, and again, many, many other interpretations of them. But one thing that became very um, obvious to me is how through many 
many centuries of this story being interpreted, it shows that we always have found this figure of the other, right? Mm -hmm. Or the othered as a way to uh, make a monster of. So what basically someone like Trump calls the bad people um, and, you know, the ones that can put America in danger or like, we don't want to let them come in because the of rapists, the, ter- the worst ones, right? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how true this monstrosity of these people, right? Like making a monster of these people um, through so many years, including the moment we're living, these, the, the other have been um, justified as those we need to keep out, those we need to ban, those we need to reject. And um, the Islamic interpretation is that when the Ajuj Majuj come and break through the wall, we are going to, you also mentioned, experience some kind of ending. And as you know, within Islamic studies, um, that ending is, is both dystopian and in some ways utopian because the ending itself is dystopian, but it will, it will result to basically something um, you know, that we want that is better. Right. So, and, right. and they use right. this very specific term, which is the end of time that they doesn't say like, in, in, and they kind of, I mean, I, I read a lot about that specific frame, which is the end of time. And yeah, that was just really powerful for me because I was like, what would the end of this time mean to us right now? As you know, as Muslim, as people from, you know, even if you're not I mean, it's about nationality at this point, right? If you're from Iran, sure. whatever your religion is, and other other countries that are also banned as well. Um, so it's like, what you know, what what would that end mean? And also for all these other people, you know, we're now in a, uh, the the past weeks there has been a lot of um, conversations and kind of protests, etc. Um, about uh, you know. Um, black people and and the struggle of uh, black people in America and and the history of slavery, etc. So it doesn't matter how you're othered within this context of history, but the fact that the otherness is almost always linked to this monstrosity was something that was, um, you know, really fascinating to me. So I turn around again like that, that image, and use the power of the chaos, the monstrous, the one that is the othered, um, as a way to actually break through the wall and then wish for some some other, some, some new beginning, another world, an alternative reality that we can live in that is not whatever it is that we're experiencing now. You're telling us that um, the chaos that we fear, or that's feared by certain powers, um, it, it, we ourselves have internalized fear of that chaos when that chaos itself could bring the end of a time that's terrible for those of us who are othered um, and could, could usher in, you know, whatever comes after the end of this time. Um, And it's just such a, uh, an eye opening. And I, I, I'm, like I said, I'm still, I have to think about this for a long time and talk about this for a lot of people, but I also thought it was really wonderful that you collectively imagine uh, Yajuj and Majuj as this female figure. Um, and that, and you said that she felt the burden of her people's exhaustion upon her shoulders, the exhaustion of constantly trying to break through the wall um, and yet not giving up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was writing it, I, it was again, very personal, but I was like horrified. And at the same time, I knew that I have the privileges that a lot of people don't have. So 
kind of like thinking about Yajuj Majuj, thinking about that story as a story that uh, becomes um, a portal in talking about and um, representing the pain of all these people who are who are who are being othered and being banned and being rejected, literally most times for for no reason. So um, that was something that became yeah very heartbreaking and at the same time painful to think about and write about. It just really made me think about um, who we are, what or who we are taught to fear um, and to examine that a little more closely. And it, it really brought to mind uh, in how, you know, right, uh, right post um, the post civil war where there was like this explosion of um, fear around black men attacking white women. Yeah. And um, right, like, you know, with, with Birth of a Nation, I mean, movies, all kinds of media, newspapers, um, and how we are systematically taught to fear something unquestioning, without question. And so this, uh, you have taught me to, to question maybe what it is that we've been taught to fear. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the things I love about how you framed this entire um, project is that um, the female jinn not only has seen the unknown and the known, but she's embraced being the other. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's something that I also try to use on my daily life and my practice of um, not shying away from, you know, wanting to constantly justify myself that I'm worthy, I'm good. And I, you know, because of this reason or that reason, I am worthy of either, you know, um, living in this country or like having access to certain kind of resources, et cetera. Um, but kind of, again, like rather um, embracing the otherness and using it um, as a way to, to, to criticize uh, that, that very, very thing that, that has been, um, you know, again, othering us. Mm. Okay, I'm going to end with one last question for you. Um, but before that, I just want to say thank you for this incredibly illuminating conversation for your work. Uh, I'm going to continue to follow it. I'm so excited to have discovered it. Uh, and I'll, we will point all our listeners in, in that direction too, so they can continue to follow you. And my last question for you is this. Do you believe you have ever personally had an experience with Jin? Um, I think that the, the ones that However I, you might think of gin, I mean, it doesn't have to, it can be whatever you gin is in your imagination. Let me clarify. Right. That. Yeah. I mean, so there are two things I can say. One is that the actual experiences of that I was telling you of this kind of nightmare sleep paralysis, which you literally feel like there is, it's not just a, like a nightmare that there is another third person with you in that space, right? So it's like you and the gin and also something else, you know, with, with the gin. So it's that experience of the sleep paralysis has been really intense and has stayed with me always. Um, and when, since I also started working on, on this project, you know, again, I grew up in Iran with a lot of these gin related stories, etc. But, um, it was not until when I started to do this body of work, she was just unknown that I like really um, had to, you know, spend a lot of hours researching. And also that, that caused like very real relationships that I had built with each of 
each of these figures, right? Like mm. I call, I sometimes call them like the, my, my children, these like five figures that, that I, you know, mentioned their names earlier that I have worked on. Um, because to work on each of them, I had to spend like hours, not just researching their history and the stories told about them, but also like writing about them and really trying to like imagine this thing as something that I'm like using its power to, 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 to do something else with. Right. And this like really became, yeah, like a, like a connection that I never thought I would, I would find with something that I'm creating this intensely. Um, but, um, this is, this is all like in that sense, very like new to me. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of see them not just, as you say, like I'm able to like imagine them also in many other forms and like many, mm. many, many other ways of their, their presence within like my personal life, as well as what they can do for the world and with the world. And kind of last thing I want to mention is that we really need a figure like the gen. I, I think, especially within like these kind of um, fig feminist um, movements and thinking about women and uh, kind of staying, kind of trying to like find something away or like different from the dominant, perhaps like Western white feminism mm -hmm. movements. For me, the image of the gin is something that, you know, I, 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 I have found it so powerful because also it's something that is for us. But one thing I say that, you know, to build this future for us, but by us, right. Um, and that's something that I think they can do. And so that means that their, their presence, it, when this project is almost done, the she who sees the unknown, but I think their presence in my, in my life will um, stay in many serious ways because I will always think about them again as portals, as channels, as, as, as uh, friends and allies and allies that can uh, help us get through whatever it is that we're trying to get through as, as we struggle this, this very moment. Thanks for checking out this week's episode and conversation. If you want to learn more about Morishin and her work, uh, you can find her on Twitter at the handle at Morishin. It is spelled M-O-R-E-H-S-H-I-N. Her website is M-O-R-E-H-S-H-I-N.com, Morishin.com. And the exhibit that we talked so extensively about is called she who sees the unknown and you can find their, the whole website about the entire project at she who sees the unknown.com absolutely check it out um read the reading room watch the videos it's amazing i hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as i did now there are as many people in the world with gin stories as there are gin so if you have one you'd like to share make sure to email it to me at thehiddenjin at gmail.com. That's thehiddenjin, T-H-E-H-I-D-D-E-N-D-J-I-N-N -N at gmail.com. And until next time, remember, we are not alone. The Hidden Gin is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Rabia Chaudhry and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. Our theme song was created by Patrick Cortez. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.